and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's show, we're going to go over to Mima's room to find out the latest gossip about Mima. We're going to head over to the set of Double Bind for our job, and then also we're going to like run away from this weird pop idol thing that keeps chasing us. But anyway, today's episode, we're going to be covering 1997's Perfect Blue. Now, my history with this film is I think I found it, I found out about it when I was watching Chris Stuckman's video about it. So, uh, Chris Stuckman, for those of you who don't know, he is a YouTuber, he's a movie reviewer guy, although he doesn't review, he might still kind of review movies, but he doesn't do that a whole lot now, but he was, he did that back then, and you can find all this stuff. But he has a video when he's an anime fan, and he talks about how anime is such an underrated genre and how awesome it is. And he talks about movies like Akira, for example, and also this movie, Perfect Blue, and just like different movies like Paprika he talked about, which is also by uh, Satoshi Kon. And anyway, but this uh, this piqued my interest where I was like, oh, I've never heard of Perfect Blue. I wonder what that is. And then I kind of fell it on the rabbit hole of what it is. And I was like, oh, okay, gotcha. So... I ended up finding it. I don't know how I watched it. I must have either rented it or something because however long ago that was, it was however many years ago, maybe. But I remember watching it. And when I watched it for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. Like, I just was like, this is just something where like couldn't take my eyes off it. I was just like really enthralled in the story. And I was just interested. I was like, I want to see what goes on with this. Uh, what, whatever this is, I'm into it. That's the pretty much the baseline idea. And my history with anime in particular, I didn't grow up watching anime like that. I probably watched like a few things of, you know, Pokemon because of when I grew up. But like, I think I watched a couple of Miyazaki movies here and there. You know, I've watched Akira in a, a movie theater. I've seen Paprika, which was Satoshi Kon's other work uh, after Perfect Blue. And I've seen a few things here and there, you know, and and whatever, but I'm not, like, a huge, like, anime person, fan, you know, watching it all the time. I still haven't made it through Cowboy Bebop, unfortunately. At some point, I probably will. I don't know. But I, uh, yeah, so for me, like, I absolutely, though, do respect the art form of anime, and I do think it's a very underrated genre and it doesn't always get the the credit that it deserves or just the recognition it deserves as well um i mean yeah obviously you have like some movies like spirited away that like obviously won an oscar and stuff like that and that's great and all but like i, I don't know i just think like i just wish more people really knew and respected this art form and how beautiful and wonderful it is. And especially with something like Akira, for for instance, that it's literally hand-drawn, man. Like, it's so cool that that was hand-drawn. And, uh, it's so good. Anyway, enough of all that, though. So on the normal show, like we normally do, uh, we're going to go into some figures about the movie, some production history, maybe a little bit of a history of exactly what's the basis of this movie, and then also we're going to move into a plot summary. So without further ado, let's move into those figures. So Perfect Blue was released August 5th, 1997 in Fantasia Festival, and made its Japanese release February 28th, 1998. This was written by Sadayuki Mirai, and was directed by Satoshi Kon and was produced by Hitomi Nagagaki, Yoshishisha Ishihara, 
Yukata Togo, Masao Moriyama, and Hiroaki Inouye. We're looking at a budget of 90 million yen, which in US dollars is $830,442, and a US and UK box office of $768,050. We're looking at a Rotten Tomato score of 83% on the tomato meter and certified fresh, and an 89% audience score. We're looking at an IMDb score of 8.0 out of 10, and a letterbox score of 4.4 out of 5. Before I start to list out the cast of characters, I would like to apologize for my pronunciation of Japanese. I didn't take anything Asian language related, so I'll try my best. We have Junko Iwa as Mima Kirigo, Rika Matsumoto as Rumi, Shinpachi Suji as Tadakoro, Masaki Okura as Mimania, Yosuke Akimoto as Tajima, Yoku Shoya as Taiko Shibuya, Hadayuki Hori as Sakuragi, Emi Shinohara as Ari Okia, Mashashi Ibara as Murano, Kiyoyuki Yanada as the director, Toro Furosawa as Yada, Amiko Furokawa as Yukiko, Shiho Niyama as Rei, and Aiko Suyama as Tadashi Doi. Some critical response quotes about Perfect Blue are as follows. We have Rob Blackwalder from Splice Wire who states, This absurd import takes weak passes at Hitchcockian mind-bending, but winds up pitching gibberish. We have Derek Smith from The Cinematic Reflections who states, Anime thriller that often plays as an examination of identity and celebrity, but ultimately gets so lost in its own complex structure that it doesn't end up saying much at all. And then we have Wendy Eyed Observer UK, who states, I found it very hard to get past the eroticized approach to rape and sexual violence, which is a pervasive stain on this otherwise intriguing film. So before we move into any kind of plot summary about Perfect Blue, I wanted to just go over some production history of the movie and also just a little bit of history about what this movie is about in general, because our main character, Mima, is a Japanese idol who then retires and goes to be an actress. So I thought it'd be important to talk a little bit about what exactly is a Japanese idol. So... An idol is a type of performer that is marketed for image, attractiveness, and personality in Japanese pop culture. Idols are mainly singers with training in acting, dancing, and modeling. So they tend to start out as singers, and then they tend to go into these different fields within the entertainment industry. So these idols are commercialized through merchandise and endorsements by like talent agencies, while also maintaining a type of parasocial relationship with a financially loyal consumer fan base. So, you know, making that money. Japan's idol industry first emerged in like the 1960s and really became prominent in the 1970s and 80s due to television. And during the 80s, regarded as the golden age of idols, idols drew in commercial interest and began appearing in like commercials and also in television dramas, which we do see in this movie. As more niche markets began to appear in like the late 2000s and early 2010s due to the advent of the internet, um, it led to a significant growth in the industry known as the idol warring period. So, you know, when you have the internet and you can fall down on the rabbit holes you want to, you know, that's just how it happens. 
So an idol is a type of entertainer whose image is really manufactured to really cultivate that fan base. So talent agencies will commercialize idols by recruiting preteens and teenagers with little or no experience in the entertainment industry, and they will market them as aspiring stars. Idols are really marketed for their image, their attractiveness, and their personalities, like I was saying earlier. Really, the main objective for an idol is to sell dreams. They're offering these fans a sort of escapism from the troubles of just daily life in general, which, hey, totally get it. And so this style of recruiting and training of idols was really pioneered by a guy named Johnny uh, Kitagawa, who was the founder of Johnny and Associates. And Johnny and Associates is like a large, pretty much talent agency in Japan. Uh, It's been around for quite a while. Idols often spend a lot of their time isolated from their families and their friends while adhering to busy work schedules, with some of these agencies withholding job assignments from their talents and notifying them of work on short notice to prevent them from taking time off, which we can get a little bit into about that. So really, this J-pop um, idol type of culture, this thing, uh, is really kind of a little bit of the basis of what K-pop also ended up being, uh, because a lot of these same criticisms could also be lobbed at K-pop as well. Some talent agencies do not regularly train their idols and market them really as amateurs who will gain experience over the course of their careers. And despite being trained in multiple roles in entertainment, a lot of these idols in Japan are not expected to meet the high standards of performance that their professional counterparts in their fields do. Because of this manufactured image, idols are not generally regarded as authentic artists, which you can say that kind of in this movie a little bit. And then likewise, you know, young Japanese artists pursuing career in acting or modeling or you know, music try to reject that idol label in order to bid themselves as like an actual professional. So idols are really seen as role models to the public, especially for young folks, and their personal lives and image can sometimes become tightly controlled by their talent agencies, which we kind of see in this movie a little bit. So not being able to do things like, you know, smoke or drink in public, pursue romantic relationships, things of that sort. And then also, we'll also get into idols are generally expected to change their careers after aging out of the industry, with uh, most female idols typically changing careers at age 25. And in this case, uh, it's 21 for Mima, apparently. Idols who leave a group are often given a farewell concert known as graduations, which we do see at the beginning of this movie. And the term originated from uh, the idol group of Onyaka Club, as the group's youthful concept drew similarities to like an after-school club. And so, again, they call this kind of graduation and all of this. So... I knew none of this kind of stuff, honestly. I just thought that was so super interesting. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what this is, I guess. But yes, that's a little bit of an idea of what exactly a idol is. So you kind of have a context of what exactly is Mima, I guess. Um, so in that situation, we'll then move a little bit into just the idea of what exactly the hell came about this movie. So... This film is uh, Satoshi Kon's uh, first directorial effort, and it really all started when a guy by the name of uh, Masoi Murayama, a producer at Madhouse at the time, he had appreciated the work that Satoshi Kon did on an OVA, which is an original video animation. Uh, It was called Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And this was based off of a manga that was uh, around, and he turned it into this. And so he contacted him about asking if he would be interested in directing something in the fall of 1994. And so the original author of uh, the 
m- you know, manga that Perfect Blue is based off of, Yoshikazu Takeuchi uh, allegedly first planned a live action film based on his novel, Perfect Blue, A Complete Metamorphosis. However, due to funding difficulties, this was quote-unquote downgraded to direct-to-video and then direct-to-video animation. But I don't think it necessarily was downgraded in regards to equality of any sort. I just think it was a matter of they didn't have the money to do a live action, so they ended up doing a direct-to-video and then also just direct-to-video animated. But whatever, it's, it is what it is. When Khan received the final initial offer, it was for an OVA project. So he made Perfect Blue as a video animation. Then it was decided to be released as a movie uh, in a hurry just before its completion. So at one point, this was just going to be a pretty much original video animation, and that's what it was going to be. But they decided, oh, let's make it a movie. This work was initially made as a video animation for a narrow market. So it was expected to disappear as soon as a few people talked about it. And the fact that such a work around the world and release as a package in many countries was unexpected for those involved. They just didn't realize it either. Psychological horror was not exactly a mainstream genre in Japanese animation. Of course, you know, Japanese folks have done a little bit of horror things here and there with something like, for example, like House from 1977. Uh, and then even uh, per, like a year or so after this, you have like The Ring, The Grudge, things like that. Juwan, you know, The Ringu, things like that. But there was no precedent for it at the time, especially within animation in Japan, if you already don't know. And we're not going to get into a whole history of anime here. But, you know, obviously a big export of Japan in general is anime, manga, things of that sort. So it would normally have been rejected, really. So nobody thought about it. It would be a hit since it was just adopted by chance. And also, uh, Satoshi Khan or Satoshi Kon, really, he was not like a horror fan or anything. So by the time he was offered this job, the title Perfect Blue and the content, which was a story about a B-class idol and a perverted fan, had already been set. He already knew that that's what was going to happen, right? He hadn't read the original novel it was based on, and he only had read the script for the film, which he said to be close to the original, and the script was never used in the actual film. So there is no play within a play in the original story, nor is there a motif of blurring the boundary between dream and reality. So the first plot was a simple splatter psycho horror story about an idol girl that is attacked by a perverted fan who cannot tolerate her image change. And there were also many depictions of bleeding. But again, Satoshi Kon didn't really like horror or idols. So Kon said that he, if he were free to make a plan, he wouldn't have used such a setting. And the genre was overused because they were already had done things like Seven, the basic instinct movie, and Sons of the Lambs. And was also something that anime was not good at really doing, like these kind of erotic thrillers. Although this ends up being an erotic thriller. Since most of the works in that genre pursue how perverted and crazy the perpetrators, the murderers are, uh, I think really Cohn focused more on how the inner world of the protagonist, the victim, is broken by being targeted by the stalker. And so in order to outsmart the audience. uh, And on, on the other hand, the play within the play, Double Bind, is apparently more like a parody than a straight psycho horror, and he made it with the intention of criticizing Japanese TV dramas that are easily made by imitating Hollywood fads immediately. I don't know if I'd call it a parody, but I definitely would say it's more of a commentary on just what these are, and he really is criticizing TV uh, dramas like this. So Satoshi Kon uh, decided to take on the role of director because he couldn't resist 
directing for the first time, and because the original author allowed him to change the story as much as he liked, as long as the main character is a B-grade idol, she had a stalker, and it's a horror film. That was it. He could do whatever else he wanted. So he took some elements from the original work, so the idea of, like, idols, the otaku fans that surround them, which is really just kind of like a stan at this point, you know, very much just like a super fan kind of thing, and the stalkers that have become more radical and come up with as many ideas as possible uh, with the scriptwriter Sadayuki Murai, with the intention of using them to create a completely new story. And the film needed a core motif, which had not been found by the screenwriter or anyone else, but by the director himself. So he came up with the board motif of two things that should have been a borderline, such as dreams and reality, memory and fact, and oneself and others. So becoming borderless and blending together. Uh, for which he wrote a script, he wrote a short film called Medic Nick Rose that kind of then played around with these sorts of ideas. In the meantime, he came up with the idea that a character more like me than I, the protagonist to the people around me, is created on the internet without my knowledge. This character is the past me for the protagonist, and this other me that should have existed only on the internet has materialized due to external factors. The consciousness of the fans who wanted the protagonist to be like that, and like internal factors like the protagonist's regret that she might have been more comfortable in the past. And then the composition that the character and the protagonist herself confronted emerged. And it was only then that he began, he convinced um, that this work could be established as his own video work. Because uh, again, he's adapting it. He decided, the director decided to interpret the original story above, you know, that we was talking about, uh, as a story about an idle girl who broke down by a sudden change in her environment, or by a stalker who targets her, and just wrote a completely new script with Sadayuki Murai. Initially, Murai wrote the first draft of the script, and Satoshi Kon um, <clears throat> added or removed ideas from it. They spent a lot of time discussing, and many of the ideas came out of that. And so then the director storyboarded out everything. He made changes to dialogue and other elements. And then the drawing work was also then pretty much done in parallel to that. So the company that purchased the videogram and television rights to Perfect Blue before the film was completed advised that the distributors to submit to like Fantasia International Film Festival in Canada so that it could be released overseas first. Since this was his first film, the director was still unknown. He wasn't really known. Um, therefore, the distributor uh, introduced the film as the first directorial effort of a disciple of uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, who created Akira, um, which had been a hit overseas and very big. So Otomo is credited as a planning collaborator, but he never arranged for the company to ask um, Satoshi uh, Khan to actually direct the film, nor was he involved in the film at all. So that was definitely a thing. Uh, however, it seems that Otomo once advised, like, you know, the original author about the circumstances of, like, the animation industry uh, and things of that sort. <laughs> yeah, so then this movie, pretty much, I mean, it came out at Fantasia and it was so well received that a second screening was was arranged for those who couldn't see it and it was like voted by the audience as like best international film and so it went into different film festivals like 50 different film festivals around the world and the distributor began negotiations with distributors in European countries and they sold the film in like 
Spanish, French, Italian, German markets, all of that. And the distributor was also successful in getting permission from Roger Corman and Irvine um, Kirshner to use their comments in recommending the film Free of Charge World Ride. And yeah, that's kind of the baseline idea of what and how this movie really came to be. Now, we got to talk about how there's definitely a rumor... And there's nothing set in, you know, stone about this, uh, because legally I, there can't really be. Um, but there is a rumor that Darren Aronofsky, you know, the guy who did Requiem for a Dream and The Whale recently and other movies like that, Black Swan, things of that sort. He had purchased the remake rights for Perfect Blue. And so, however, when he spoke to Satoshi Kon in a magazine in 2001, he stated that he had to uh, abandon the purchase of those rights due to different reasons. Um, He also said that it was an an homage to the movie that his film, Requiem from a Dream, also had the same angles and shots as Perfect Blue, which I can say that, yeah. But yeah, so there is this, like, like, uh, rumor. I do think he actually did buy the rights to this. And of course, like, there is an actual scene that literally is in Requiem for a Dream. It's when, um, I do not remember the lady's name, but the girl who ends up being a prostitute, she's in the bathtub and you see her underneath the water and then she screams. That is also literally in this movie. And so there's that. Uh, and then also just the idea that Black Swan was directed by Darren Aronofsky. And, you know, it's not the same story, but I mean, it's not, it's always so far off, you know? Um, but yeah, you can kind of get into the weeds with that kind of thing, of course. But generally, I would say, I mean, I somewhat believe it a little bit that maybe he like homaged it. I mean, fucking everything's been done already. You know what I mean? So, but I, I definitely think like it, it's almost a mistake or, you know, it's, it, it's so hard not to think like, oh God, like this definitely was homaged and this definitely has been an influence on these movies. And God, how could it not be? You know what I mean? Don't worry. We'll talk about that more in some other future episodes we're going to have. But anyway, um, but yeah, I think that's a little bit about that production history, though. That's really what it came to be. Like, you know, this is based off of a, a manga that happened. It was based off of a pretty much book. And, you know, they turned it into something that is kind of completely its own story, which is really, really super cool. And I thought was like so interesting. So I really enjoy that. And I think it really... You know, unfortunately, uh, Satoshi Kon is, you know, he's no longer with us. Uh, he passed away quite a while ago. But I just think, like, God, this movie is just so fucking great. And it really is just, like, these movies that, I mean, it is one of the best anime movies ever made, I would say. It really is. I think it is a great psychological horror film that I think is just so so good and i mean yeah how could you not like enjoy this i mean hopefully if you're listening to this podcast like you know you you want to hear about me talking about it i guess but yeah but that's a little bit about you know the production history of perfect blue how it really came to be i gave you a history lesson about idols and stuff but without further ado though we're going to move on to a nice little plot summary of 
perfect blue. So we begin our film with like kind of a Power Rangers intro, and these are known as Powertron. So again, it's like a Power Rangers type thing. And they are doing this like kind of outdoor show at the same place where we see that uh, these guys are talking about this group called Sham, C-H-A-M. And they're talking outside the venue about them and just like, you know, ooh, you know about this girl or about this girl. We get the idea that Sham is this three girl group, three girls, you know, in a group and everything. Um, and they are a, you know, a collective. We then have our intro to some hoodlums that are outside of the venue as well. And so then we see backstage at the venue. Um, this is, so this is an outdoor venue and we see that it's just chaos back there. You know, we see our bits and pieces of our girls from Sham and our main character, Mima. Uh, Sham then comes out to actually perform. Uh, other song and this is where we kind of get our title card of perfect blue so then we have like kind of a cut back and forth of different things so we have mima who is on the train home um go back to her little apartment and then we also cut into like mima grocery shopping for example but then in the mix of that again I will already tell you this right now. This movie is so... It jumps around a little bit, and it's not exactly based in some reality. I mean, it is it is for the most part. But, you know, it definitely... Uh, the whole point is to kind of blur those lines. So, yeah, we cut back to, like, the performance that they're doing at this outdoor venue. And then, again, you, like, see Mima, like, grocery shopping, kind of, and things like that. So... You know, then you have the, during these performance, the hoodlums, I was talking about earlier, uh, they're causing a ruckus and they're just like there to cause shit pretty much. Uh, like they're not even interested in sham. Like they're literally just trying to like fuck shit up, which whatever. Okay. So then you see that Mima is with her agent, Rumi, who they're meeting about a TV series. Uh, so Rumi, we're to gather that she is a manager of Mima, who is kind of like the center of this group sham but rumi herself is a former pop idol too she also had done this job before but they're meeting with uh tadakoro who they're meeting about this like tv series that you know uh mima's gonna be starring on uh, or going to be in i guess and we get back to the performance with sham and then we get our bit of an intro to our stalker character mimania and so we see that he's just like drawn really creepily and like creepy. So then Sham, during their performance, like when they're about to uh, start to wrap up a little bit. So it's like a really short set, apparently, that they're doing. But they start to give some news to the audience. They're, they're needing to deliver some important news. But then in the middle of this, though, a fight breaks out in the audience. And so shit gets fucked up, right? Um, and so the hoodlums I was talking about earlier, they're getting stuff thrown at them and everyone's like yelling at them to like, go home, go home, go home. And then Literally, I think Mima is the one who literally says, like, stop. And then what ends up happening is Sham actually delivers the news that pretty much Mima is going to be graduating from Sham. And as I stated earlier in my wonderful little history lesson, we know that, you know, with idols, at one point or another, they do graduate onto this different path in their life. 
So this is what she does. She's telling everybody, you know, it's been great the last two and a half years with Shem, but it's time for me to go be a rookie actress. So let me go do that now. So that I have in my notes, Mima sings a damn ballad, which she does, and it's so very nicely sung. And this is our actual opening sequence. So we literally have like, you know, in Japanese, like different Japanese characters and stuff. Um, we have like the people who are in this movie or like the production crew and things like that. And then pretty much Mima is walking back to her little apartment. Love her little apartment. Um, I have a friend. Hey, Ian. Uh, but he's like super obsessed with like, you know, the, the Mima's like apartment. And it is kind of a nice little apartment. I'm not even going to lie. It looks really cute. But anyway, so uh, Mima gets home and she's settling in for the night. She's just so fucking tired because, you know, she just pretty much quit her fucking you know like her uh her girl group job and she's gonna fucking uh, make it as a try to make it as an actress man so then mima gets home and she's in her bed she then takes down her sham poster and all that and then we see that mima's mom calls her and she's just calling her and just being like you know oh well you know you always wanted to be a singer honey and then she's like oh you just don't understand like i had to do something else and you, know, you can't do it forever man you, you can't we all we can't all be fucking dolly parton you know what i mean like or fucking whoever else uh god can you imagine if i was dolly parton i would love that dolly come on the show but anyway so uh Anyway, Mima then gets a weird call on the other line. It's just some guy, like, you know, breathing and shit. So that was fucking weird. And then we see, because this is 1997 and computers were in their infancy and text messaging didn't exist yet, we see that there's a fax coming through, Mima's fax machine, and it just says traitor on it because apparently she's a traitor for quitting her, her girl group job. What the hell do I have in my notes? I have spooky ass, apparently. There's no spooky ass in this movie. Uh, there's spooky ass scenes. I think that's what I was trying to say. But pretty much, like, it's this kind of weird sort of, like, while she's getting the facts, she just says, who are you? Who are you? But then we find out, and it actually cuts into the next scene of... Mima on the set of Double Bind. And that is actually her little line she has. So she literally is kind of like, I don't know, glorified featured extra, if you will, in this Double Bind show, which is kind of like a show like fucking, I don't know, like Criminal Minds or like, I don't know, like something like that, you know, where it's like very much a uh, a kind of psychological procedural movie, uh, like TV show, I guess. But she's on the set of Double Bind. She has her, you know, three lines of who are you and Rumi explains the internet to Mima is what I have in my notes but like you know she's teaching her about you know because what had happened is that you see that somebody beforehand uh, when Mima was leaving her I think it was the outdoor venue somebody gives her one of her fans gives her a little note and uh says i'm always checking out mima's room and she's like what the hell is that so that's how ruby is explaining the internet to her is that she's like oh like what is this thing that you know this person was telling us about and be like well you know it is a home page uh and they're probably referring to a web page and it's so funny that in 1997 i mean i i remember some of the 90s and i remember like computers being big as a 
bitch and you know like you got on american online or whatever the hell you know it was it was a different time man it was way different anyway so then we go into actually shooting double by and see like you see the pre-taping of it where you know like the main actress and actor lady they're like you know, kind of just bantering back and forth, but then they get into their actual, like, you know, serious actor mode, and then they're actually shooting Double Bind, and then we see Mima's scene coming up, uh, where Mima is pretty much like a... I don't even know what the hell her character is supposed to be. It's like kind of a... um, She is the sister of somebody or something like that. It's, I didn't actually really pay attention to that. I'm sorry. This is my second job at this point. So like, you know, but she's in the show mainly because of the fact that she was in this kind of popular scroll group. That's kind of one of the big things. So the screenwriter comes to set. And of course, like, you know, people are talking to him and stuff. And that's really cool and all. You know, it's always nice to have a screenwriter around because they're making the show happen in a way. These dudes, uh, so I think it's the station dude and the, uh, station dude and the screenwriter dude. They're talking to the screenwriter about, um, getting Mima more lines pretty much. So I guess this is like the agent dude, maybe, and like the station dude who are talking to him about trying to get Mima more lines. But as I stated before, there was this other male that came in and there was a male, uh, for, I guess, Mima, I guess. Um, that came through and be like, oh, like we can give it to, you know, we'll give that to Mima in a, in a little bit, you know, or whatever. Uh, but pretty much what happens is that people are talking all around the set and all that. And then somebody, I guess, opens the letter that was supposed to be for Mima. And that actually was like kind of a flash bomb that came out and it ends up injuring um, the station dude, I believe. And so he uh, he's like bleeding and stuff. And like, I think the message in there says something about like, this was just, you know, a test, like the next time it'll be real or something. So then you have like roomies explaining to Mima, be like, oh, like, I think that was thing was supposed to be for me. And then, you know, Rumi's just like, oh, no, like, don't worry about it. Like, it was just something that, you know, the guy is fine. Like, he's perfectly okay. So then we see that Rumi then helps set up Mima's computer for her in her room. Uh, because again, like, I guess Rumi sees herself as kind of a, I mean, not a mother figure, I guess, but like just as kind of a, a older lady presence, if you will, older female presence, I guess. Not that she's super old or anything, but just older than Mima. We find out that Mima actually is about 21, I believe, in this story. And Rumi, I don't know how old she's supposed to be, but we see that, you know, Rumi takes takes care of Mima in a way and really cares about her. Rumi then teaches more internet to to Mima because, you know, it was hard back then knowing how the internet worked because she didn't fucking know. And so, you know, like Rumi teaches her about like, here's what a web browser is. They use Netscape Navigator. Ugh, the days. But anyway, so you had that and like, you know, uh, just teaching her about what the hell to do. And then she's like, uh, can't you explain it to me in Japanese? Uh, and she's just like, girl, I don't understand none of this. And then we see that Mima tries to surf the web, and thankfully she didn't just get on porn, I guess. You know, of course. But anyway, then Mima ends up finding Mima's room, because again, somebody had said, oh, I'm always looking at Mima's room. And so she actually finally finds it. And so 
Mima's room is really supposed to be this blog, I guess, if you want to call it that, of these days. Uh, it's a blog where it's like somebody who's writing as if they're Mima, as if they're Mina Kirogawa. And like she gets a little bit of a kick out of it at first because she's like, oh, this is kind of funny. Like, oh, like, you know, somebody's like writing as if they're me or something. Oh, that's kind of silly. But then Mima starts to realize that she has like some kind of goddamn stalker, pretty much, is what I have in my notes. Yeah, because she is like literally it it's to the point where like the whoever's doing Mima's room like knows what foot she uses to get off of the the subway first, you know? It's like really fucking creepy and it's so weird that like she thinks it's kind of funny at first and then she's like, Oh wait, that's kind of weird. Like what the hell? And it's just that little bit of kind of an unsettling point in our movie that, you know, is just like, Oh God, it is really creepy. But then we're back to the station dude, the other agent dude, I guess is what I'll call him or whatever. And Rumi who are having a meeting about Mima's TV appearance. So again, trying to say like, you know, uh, like, she only got, like, three lines? Like, what the hell? Like, we need to try and get her more. Like, is it even worth her having left Sham for this? Like, this is bull. You know, they, they have their conversation back and forth, you know, and all that. So then we see some dudes are talking uh, about Double Bind at the bookstore. I think they're the same dudes from earlier who were at the Sham concert, who were kind of talking a little bit of shit. Not the hoodlums, but, like, the other guys that were there. And we see all that, and then we see Mima, who is running up the subway stairs, uh, because I think she saw, she's starting to then see just some weird stuff, like, she's seeing this person who looks exactly like her, but she's dressed up in her idol clothes, and so that's this is where I think we start to see that little bit of that as well, it's just really creepy. But then Mima's running up the subway stairs and she ends up running into the studio. There's this like paparazzi people outside of the studio, but then like they're like, oh, do they just become rude when they become actresses? Like, oh my gosh. Then you have um, Mima ends up seeing Mimania and it's just like a real quick glimpse kind of thing. Like he kind of like ends up being like in an elevator somewhere or something like that and it's just like real quick but it's just something where it's just like a kind of blink and you miss him kind of thing but that just kind of unsettles her a little bit she's like what the hell is this so the mima uh is coming up and she is at either her studio or like she is at Maybe the offices, the agency offices, I guess. Because the other girls from Sham are there. And while they're celebrating that they're on the charts now, or like whatever the hell they're doing, uh, Mima gets her new script. And so then we are back on to see that Mima is shooting a new scene on Double Bind. Again, she got a little bit more lines this time. She's like actually there to like, you know, do her acting thing. And she got a little bit more of a, you know, some lines, which is great. And then... We see that the screenwriter, he's now talking to the other male agent, agent, studio guy, whatever the hell, about a new episode that he is writing. And they're a little talking a little bit about that. Now, I'll give a content warning right now in case you need it at all. But I will say that there is a rape scene that is written for Mima. And Rumi is pissed. So this... Is definitely talking about just, um, you know, a sexual assault scene that is coming up. And also it is a part of this movie in a way. 
And so that's what they were talking about before. They were like, you know, oh, like we're making this new scene. Like, you know, it's going to be a real doozy pretty much. And Rumi's fucking pissed. She's so upset. She's like, Mima, don't worry. Like, we'll make the producers change it. It's fine. But then in a turn of events, though, we see that Mima herself is actually down to do the scene. Honestly, she's like, well, it's not like I'm actually being raped. Like, you know, and it'll be something different for me to do. And you even just see Rumi. She's just like, Mima, like, what? Like, she can't even believe it. And, you know... I don't know. It's it's crazy to think, I guess. But yeah, that's just that, that's what it was, you know? I mean, she's like, well, I'm down to do it. Like, if I'm going to be an actress, I need to be able to do anything, really, you know, for the most part, within reason. So she found that to be reason, I guess. So Mima's on her way home, you know, from this whole meeting she's had and, and all that kind of stuff. And so then we get into, there's a sh- scene at the strip club. Because on Double Bind, there's a strip club where, you know, the fact that Mima is coming from being a pop idol, you know, kind of ties into the story a little bit. And, you know, it's obviously kind of written in that way where it's like, oh, see, we got this pop idol who's like stripping or whatever. And her, we have this strip club scene. And so the whole point of the scene is that Mima is her character and she is, I guess, stripping because that's what she has to do or that's what her character's doing. And then things just get out of hand. And then what ends up happening is she is then raped by, I don't know if it's the owner of the strip club or like the manager of the strip club or something like that in the show. And then everyone's around her egging it on pretty much. So then, so it's like, kind of like the accused in a way or like any of those movies where you've ever had like a sexual assault on somebody and they kind of like dramatize it a little bit. And yeah. And then you, I just have in my notes, the goddamn rape scene. We're not going to spend too much time on it. Cause I don't want to do that, but it's, it's not comfortable to watch. I mean, you see that like, you know, they're simulating the sex and it's just like, it's not comfortable to watch. So again, if you need that kind of content warning with sexual assault, rape, things like that, please, you know, I understand that's why I wanted to put it, but, uh, it's just not, it's not fun to watch. It's interesting because, you know, for as hard as it is to watch and just be like, Oh God, like, it's just not like Mima's delivering in it. And I guess, you know, in some part of her brain, she must, have some idea of like, you know, okay, this, I'm doing this because of, I'm doing this for my art. I'm doing this because I want to be an actress and, and all that. I still feel like in a way she wasn't exactly comfortable with doing this and she did, and we'll get to that in a minute, but you know, I feel like she definitely felt kind of forced to do it. She ended up doing it and I do think she did a good job with like portraying this horrible rape scene, you know, I mean, as an actress, if we're looking at it that way, like even, I think it's so interesting how they kind of break down the idea of like, this is a TV show. So like the guy even is like, Oh, sorry, you know? And he, she's like, Oh no, it's fine. And it, it's kind of that, um, clinical approach to it where it can feel like that in a, a script in a, a set, like a film, TV show, theater, whatever, that there is this kind of technical part to it. But yeah, it definitely just, it, it feels just like creepy. It just feels like, you know, yeah, it doesn't feel great. 
And you see that Rumi, I think, is crying during the scene, you know, so she's off on the side and she's she's crying and she just can't deal with it. And it's so, um, yeah, it's it's not comfortable to watch. I, I'll say that much. But it, it is this interesting kind of breakdown of it. And I just feel like she definitely felt she understood it was part of the job, I guess, I, I would argue in a way. But like at the same time, I'm also like probably felt like she couldn't not do it, you know. And, and again, we'll get to that in a minute. We see Mima that's in her dressing room after this scene. And she goes home and you then see that Mima gets home and her fishies are dead. So she has fishies you saw earlier and they are now all dead. Well, whether or not they're dead because someone killed them or whether or not she just hasn't fed them. I don't really know. But then what happens after this is I just put in my notes. I say Mima breaks down and fucks her room up, which she does. She... And this is where I'm talking about where she is saying, like, of course I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I couldn't. And of course you have, like, this fucking, like, subtitles that are all, like, English and shit. But anyway, she's fucking her room up, and you find out that she's saying, like, you know, of course I didn't want to do it, but, like, I feel like I couldn't let the people who, I you know, helped me get here, I couldn't let them down. And that still, in a way, is still some sort of coercion, and even if it's not explicit it's still something where it's like you feel pressured in doing something that you really just don't want to do um especially for something like that you know and that's just really oh gosh it's it's not it's not fun to to see but then we also have an actual vision of pop idol mima and we actually see that like she's pretty much talking shit i think or we see this actual vision of her in her room and just again this is blurring that line between the dreams and reality and stuff and this is kind of our our big introduction to the pop idol mima that we see we then see mimania who is the stalker of the story uh, he's on the internet uh in mima's room so he is in his like creepy ass little apartment and he is on Mima's room. He's reading through that. I think it's talking about like, you know, on Mima's room, they're talking about how like, you know, Oh, we did the scene today and like all this sort of stuff. And then interspliced with this, you do see Mima making interviews and like doing these little weird TV interviews about being an actress or whatever. They're very much probably scripted by somebody else, obviously to be like, you know, Oh, well, you know, I did that scene, but you know what? It was just such a, an important exploration for me to do as an actress and blah, 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 blah. But you know, it just, it just feels so um, forced in a way but it's not because she wants it to be forced i think it's because the people behind her do force it uh in a way then i have in my notes i have mima on mima's room website which i guess what that means is that mima is now on the mima's room website looking at stuff and again we then see that pop idol mima actually makes herself available and known and she is like she is talking shit to her, seeing like, you know, oh, you're just like a dirty imposter. You're just like, your reputation's tarnished and it's never going to be the same. 
and fucking pipe hop idol Mima appears to actual Mima and she just like hops away out of the fucking window. And this is kind of that iconic scene of like pop idol Mima, who is like a vision who I don't think is real. Um, well, we kind of get to that later in the story, but she just like floats down onto these like streetlights and just hops along them. It's just like so freaky and so creepy. Uh, but yeah, so she hops away and then Mima's just like, what the fuck did I just see? Like, what is this? And it's like, oh my God, like, is this kind of like a supernatural thing? Like, what the hell is this? So then we get our first, like, kill of the movie where we have this parking garage kill and it's the screenwriter who got killed. So he's in the parking garage, he's coming to the studio, and he is going into an elevator, or he is waiting for an elevator as he's coming to the Double Bind studio. And it's this was a scene I just watched not too long ago uh, in preparation of this podcast, and I think it's so creepy when the music from the beginning that Sham was playing, um, they were singing... Uh, is used in this scene in a really cool way because you can barely hear it. And then you actually do hear it because it's like a radio that's inside one of the elevators that he's trying to get on. Uh, but then pretty much what happens is that you find out that um, he opens the elevator doors and then you see this boom box. And then the next time you see the elevator open, he's dead in the elevator with his eyes gouged out. So then people are starting to find out about the death of this screenwriter. Like it's on the news and stuff like that. And then people are like, Oh God, did you hear about this? And even Mima sees it. She ends up seeing uh, about this. And she like is in the middle of, I think it was, she's with uh, Takadoro, uh, the agent guy. And she like runs out of the car because, you know, he's talking about how this is like a thing. And she ends up seeing pop idol Mima and she just like runs out of the car. She's like, what the fuck is this? What's going on? So again, this is like her starting to lose a little bit of a grip going on, I think, for sure. So then we see a Mima photo shoot. Now, Mima's photo shoot is one by this guy. I don't remember what his name is. I'm sorry. But anyway, he uh, we see that he is known, and I think even some of the people from Sham, the other girls from Sham, they say something about how he is known for having his subjects in his photo shoots show way more than they would normally show, let's just say, getting them to strip and stuff. And that is exactly what uh, Mima does. So we definitely see some animated titties up in this. We see some animated bush. Okay. So get into it. All right. We do see a full-on animated vagina at some point in this movie. But anyway, so, yeah, but Mima does this photo shoot because, again, you know, she's coming from this idol thing, right? Like, let's take a minute. So, like, you know, when we think about it, okay, she's 21, something like that, right? And she's been with Sham for two and a half years or whatever. So she came out of this, what, 19, something like that. She probably joined Sham, and who knows even before that. So, like, it's one of these things where, you know, some of her her youth has been in this machine for Japanese pop music. And so, just like how we can make the argument of so many different child actors that go off the rails, quote-unquote, after they get off a show or they are just trying to, like, 
do whatever, you know, after they have this stardom at a young age, you know, it's like, yeah, sometimes it does happen to kind of break those chains that you feel. And I guess as long as it's not hurting anyone else, I mean, who's to care? But I think also when you're in the public eye like that, though, like you do have that added layer of people really thinking that you're their property in some way or that they get some kind of piece of you, which is not the case for celebrities. So please don't be creepy to any celebrities you ever meet because you don't know what they're fucking doing, (laughs) what they've gone through or, you know, any of that stuff. Um, But yeah, so... But yeah, I mean, we are seeing that and, and that is, I think, something in this movie that is touched upon is like this kind of outer avatar. We want to build this persona that is Mima Kirogawi, you know, and, and she is this like, former pop idol turned actress and, and she is like this image, right? And then the actual Mima is kind of dealing with this sort of duplicity going on and are things real? And, and we see that a little bit further in the movie as well. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about that, and especially with this photo shoot, because, you know, obviously she's a pretty lady and, you know, she wants to show off her body and she probably wants to do that to kind of rebel a little bit too, you know? But then we see Sham performs their new little song. And we see that Pop Idol Mima then appears to Mima in the bathroom because I think they're on set somewhere. I think they're on set um, for uh, Double Bind. Mima's kind of held up in the bathroom and and all of this. And that's where Pop Idol Mima kind of appears to her and, and says some stuff to her. And then I have in my notes, this is where the Requiem for a Dream scene comes in. So as we stated, there's this photo shoot that happens. We see it intermixed in with like Sham now performing one of their new songs. And then we have this like Requiem for a Dream scene. And I call it that because there is a scene, like I said earlier, in Requiem for a Dream that really this is homaging or that is an homage to this really. So it's Mima's head under the water while she's taking a bath as she just yells bastards into the water and then in the Requiem for a Dream scene it's the same thing Uh, the lady who ends up becoming a prostitute is like in the same kind of position and she just screams into the bathtub so with the water so I call it the Requiem for a Dream scene so then you see that Mimania has been collecting the nude photographs from the magazine I think it was Zoom is what it was called and he ends up talking to the quote real Mima, which we have this idea that I guess somebody is communicating with Mimania through Mima's room or somewhere that is giving him all this information of what to do for them because they're the real Mima and the other Mima is not the real Mima, you know, so that kind of thing. We then see that they're shooting a scene for Double Bind. Um, so they're shooting a scene out on these docks and stuff where, like, it's about to rain and shit. And then also I think Mima is like, oh, my God, I'm seeing, like, this fucking, like, weird ass, like, <laughs> I'm seeing this, like, weird ass, like, guy here. And it's, like, scaring the hell out of me. So... You see that they're shooting a scene for Double Bind. Then we see that Sham is doing a radio show, uh, talking about where they're going to be at and things like that. And Mima comes by. She stops by. But then, unfortunately, she sees Pop Idol Mima also fucking there. Um, 
Again, these are like these weird visions going on. Um, and then so she runs the fuck away, is what I say. Um, so she runs away, she's like running through the building, and she's like running down the stairs, and she's just like gotta get out, right? And then we see my notes are so stupid, but like my notes say like Mima runs the fuck outside in the rain because again, the scene that we were talking about in double buying before it's in the rain out the docks and things like that. And then um, she runs outside. She's in the rain. She's running, running, running. And then she ends up in the middle of the street, in the middle of a crosswalk. And she's about to get hit by a uh, truck. Uh, but then we find out it's a dream bitch. And we're going to, we're going to see a few more of these too. Don't you worry. So then we see that Rumi, okay, good old Agent Rumi, she comes over for some tea, and he, her and Mima are talking a little bit, and Rumi asks Mima if somebody has been harassing her, and has been asked about that, but then we're back to Double Bind, and again, we're back into this scene outside, and again, it's just this weird kind of thing, and it's a damn dream, man, that's what I have in my notes, is that it is this weird dream, because you keep seeing Mima, like, I think it was um, when you find out it's a dream, and she's about to get hit by the car, like, you see her face as she's waking up, right? And so then, it's just really fucking weird, and then Rumi comes back again, similar, like, you hear the little doorbell, um, like you did the first time, and then you see Rumi come in. And so Rumi is there with Mima with her tea and stuff like that. And then I have in my notes that Mima gives herself stigmata because she literally crushes the teacup in her hands where she's just bleeding now, giving herself stigmata. And so at this point, you could really tell that Mima is like losing her grip on reality. And she's just losing her grip on it all because she's like, what the fuck is going on with me? So then you have the male agent dude, the, the Takadoro guy, I think, or whatever his name was. You have that guy who is at his house and he is, he apparently got pizza, I guess, or like somebody with pizza just came to his door, I guess, and he was paying for it. So maybe he ordered it. And he's getting pizza. You see this person from behind who is the pizza guy, pizza person or whatever. And uh, then, like, what ends up happening is that uh, before the station guy, the fucking, you know, agent dude, he's able to get his pizza. He pretty much gets stabbed in the eye. And then we see him, like, holding his eyes, got stabbed into, and he's, like, trying to, like, get back into his apartment, but then this killer ends up, like, stabbing their way through the window or through the door, I guess, um, and breaks the glass and things like that. And this is where we start to see, like, you know, oh, God, like, because this guy is getting killed the fuck out, man. He's getting stabbed over and over and over again. And so... We are then seeing that Mima is supposedly killing this guy, pretty much. But then, oh, don't worry, everybody, because now, bitch, it's all a dream. Because then we see Mima then wake up again, because now it's all a dream. But then what happens, so it's Mr. Murano, I think his name is. That's what I got. Again, I was trying to figure out who the fuck all these people are. But yeah, pretty much people are starting to find out about Mr. Murano's death. So he was a part of the show. And so he, yeah, people are starting to find out about it. And I think even um, 
Mima finds out about it. She turns the TV on and she sees it. And she's in her room. And then she goes into, because she looks at Mima's room. She looked at Mima's room at one point before this and saw a picture of her, like, with a, a shopping bag of some sort. And she goes into her closet and she finds that it's that same shopping bag, shopping bag she had. But then in this case, there's like this bloody shirt in there and it's like this like f- really fun music that comes in it's just like uh it's kind of like it follows it's that kind of music if you've ever seen that movie it's like dish, 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 dish. like it's that kind of music that like follows some of these like um scenes which i think is really good and very tension building but anyway so then we see that the press comes to mima's door and is trying to get a comment of, about um mr morano's death and all this stuff and she of course is just like oh god i'm not trying to talk to anybody so then we are on the set at double bind again again this whole fucking movie is like a weird balance of what is real and what is not so we're on set at double bind but then fucking guess what it's another dream okay (laughs) another dream okay it's another fucking dream i just say damn so many dreams in this movie uh so again i'm not gonna go all into depth about like what all these dreams all supposed to mean and things like that but that's the basic idea there's a whole lot of dreams but now i don't think there's a ton of dreams anymore i don't think and then here's our intro into this of Mima's character on the Double Bind show is actually suffering with dissociative identity disorder or DID. And so kind of like multiple personalities, if you will. And so we see that that is what she's dealing with. And we are, you know, seeing that there's like one part where she says, yes, I am an actress. And then like, there's another scene that they do where it says, yes, I am a model. And then at the end of all this, you see everyone clapping and applauding because then pretty much what happens is that double bind is actually done shooting, which is great. And so everyone's done and the show's done and the season's done or whatever the hell. And it's all great and wonderful. And yeah, it's like really cool. So Mima, you know, they're going to do the rap party and they're, you know, going to do that. So I remember, so it's like Mima ends up seeing her lady co-star, the lead co-star lady. She and her kind of interact a little bit and she's like, oh, okay, ha ha ha. And so then, but what ends up happening is that in this hallway, we see them walk down. Mima and Mimania finally come face to face. Cause again, the only other time she saw him is in kind of passing. Like she thought she saw him on set at Double Bind one time. And then she saw him that one time when she was at the studio or whatever. So, you know, she finally comes face to face with him. And so we now see that Mimania, who is a stalker guy throughout the whole movie, he's pretty much trying to kill Mima. So he literally has like a knife to her and he's like, you know, saying like, hey, you're not the real Mima. I talked to the real Mima and all of this. And he pretty much assaults her. So he like literally like rips her shirt open. And he like is ripping like in her panties and he's like trying to like sexually assault her too. So again, content warning. But anyway, so... You have that, but you know what? Mima's a strong girl, and she's fighting the fuck back. Because she is. Like, she is taken down. She's really trying to fight this dude, which I appreciate. Because, yeah, I would want to do the same fucking thing, dude. So, we see that Mima fights back. She, like, throws a piece of wood at him. And, you know, trying to incapacitate him. And she gets resourceful. So, she ends up, I say in my notes, she kills the fuck out of Mimania uh, with a hammer to the side of the head. And so... 
you just see like her face where she's just like, (sighs) you know, and she's just like, what the fuck did I just do? Then we then go into, um, we're nearing the end of the movie kind of sort of, but Rumi finds Mima because we see that Rumi is looking to see where, what is taking her so long. And like, you know, the, I think it was Mr. Takador or something like that. He ends up leaving and you see Rumi is like going back in to like go find Mima. So Rumi finds Mima um, outside of like a door and she's like disheveled and Mima leads her back to this place. It was a set. It was the um, set of the strip club that the earlier scene happened in. And so she leads Rumi back to this place where she killed this Mimania guy but he's not there. Like his, his body isn't there. And now she's just like, Oh my God, what the fuck is going on here? Like what is even going on? So then we see Rumi is driving Mima home, quote unquote home, I guess. And so driving her home and she's taking her. She even says, she says, I'm taking you to Mima's room. And you kind of are like, okay, why did she say it like that? So then we get to Mima's room, which is Mima's room, apparently. And Mima, she wakes up. So, like, she falls asleep in Rumi's car and she wakes up and she's in this room that looks like her room and all that stuff. And she calls Mr. Takadork. She had to talk, call that guy. And you hear his cell phone ringing, but you find out that he's dead as hell. With Mamania, okay, so that all did happen, so she did kill him, but now to Mr. Takador is dead, um, so you're like, oh, shit. So then, you know, you see that, and Mima then starts to piece together what exactly is going on here, and so what we end up finding out is that Mima then finds out that Rumi, her manager, her agent, is behind all of this. And you end up finding out pretty much that all this time, Pop Idol Mima, I guess, has been like this kind of vision of horror (laughs) to Mima, of course, but pretty much it has been Rumi this whole time in a way. I don't know how exactly they read that, but that's pretty much what it is. And yeah, so Rumi is behind all of it. So Rumi has carried out all of the stuff. Everything from making sure one of those hoodlum kids got uh, hit or he got in a severe accident in the beginning of the movie. All the killings that have happened, she was a part of that and she did them. This also then means that she is the author behind Mima's Room, which is why she knows so many details about her. She's the one who was talking to Mamania and she's the real Mima. And all of this stuff all comes to a head at the end. So, yeah, it's creepy as shit, dude. And so, anyway, so then we have Rumi is trying to kill Mima with her ice pick, as you do. Because, you know, why not? But Mima is fighting back. She fights, fights, and fucking fights, dude. So I'm not going to go too crazy in depth to this whole thing. But she pretty much what happens is she is like trying to go out the window. She's like going on the balcony of this place, which apparently is not her actual room. But anyway, so she frighteningly runs away from Rumi, which I would fucking too, because when you think about it, like Rumi 
is chasing after this girl. And if you don't already know, I don't know if I explained this. I don't think I did. So Rumi is like an older lady. She's like probably in her 30, mid thirties, forties, maybe. I don't know. And she's like a physically larger lady than Mima. And like, you know, like, I don't know how she would do all these fucking killings and be like fucking doing any of this. And you do see that like, you know, yeah, but you're, that's what is so interesting about this film is that it blends this idea of, you know, dream and reality. Like, what is real and what is not? How is Rumi doing all of this? Like, what the fuck? It, it's a lot. Anyway, so Mima f- runs away from Rumi and then we end up seeing. So she's like, so she's got her ice pick, but then she loses her ice pick. And then she picks up like an umbrella because like that'll do in the meantime. And so anyway, so then, but what I think is one of the creepiest scenes is that uh, we see the real Rumi actually chasing after Mima uh, through the reflection of a window. And you see that it's like Rumi literally being like, <gasps> you know, because she's like this like overweight lady, you know, who is just like. And it's weird, too, because, like, she's wearing, like, this, like, outfit that's, like, kind of a pop idol outfit, and it might be one that she had back when she was a pop idol. Like, it's a whole thing. And you're just like, oh, God, what is this woman doing? Like, it's just, when you don't know anything about this movie, like, and you just go into it, and you're just like, oh, okay, it's, like, this lady who's the agent. But when you just are like, oh, she is a sick fuck. She has literally killed and gouged out all these people's eyeballs. And it's fucking crazy, dude. We finally come to a head where Rumi gets stabbed. Um, so pretty much like they get to this point where like this window breaks as they're fighting and, you know, Mima's trying to stand up for herself. And we do see that Rumi gets stabbed in the stomach and she then cries out in the road. Um, so we like see that she falls onto this piece of, of window shard and like, she's bleeding and that's where we get our iconic scene of like the pop idol Mima that has all the blood all over her and stuff. And that's like the scene that's like an iconic uh, part of this movie. It's like a visual and that comes from this scene. But anyway, so she cries out into the road. She's just like in the middle of the road. uh, Rumi is. And so then she's about to, which then kind of harkens back to when Mima was having that dream about almost getting hit by the car. But like, Rumi is almost in real life actually getting almost hit by this truck. But then in the last bit, Mima ends up saving Rumi from being run over, which is, which is cool. And she like pushes her out of the way. And then this truck driver is all like, what the fuck? Like, what is going on here? So then you have that, um, you know, yeah, that's what ends up happening. So, she frees herself and Mima saves her from being run over. And then now it seems like Mima's hallucinations are pretty much over. And so some time later, Mima is now a well-known actress. So she is known by people and she ends up visiting Rumi in a mental institution that she has been committed to because she did kill a bunch of people. And Rumi's doctor says that she still believes sometimes that she is a pop idol most of the time, that that's what it is. So really, Rumi is the one who's been suffering with this multiple personalities, DID type of thing. And so Mima said that she's learned a lot from her experience, thanks to Rumi. So, you know, 
I owe her a lot, you know? And, um, and as Mima is leaving the hospital, she like overhears these two nurses who are talking about her and they think like, she looks like a lookalike, I guess. Like, oh, there's no way that the real Mima Kirigori would have no reason to go to a mental institution. Why would she be doing that? And, um, then as we enter the car with Mima, she's getting in the car. She smiles at herself in the uh, rearview mirror uh, before declaring to herself in her rearview mirror, no, I'm real. <laughs> and then, yeah, that's pretty much the end of the movie. We get to that. And so that is the end of Perfect Blue. So I have to say, in regards to Perfect Blue, as I stated earlier, I just think this movie is so good it's such a wonderful example of anime as a whole. I think it's a great anime film. It's a great psychological horror film that's kind of like this psychological horror, erotic thriller kind of thing, mashup thing going on. I really like that. I love how it blurs these lines. And I think what's so cool about it is the fact that because it is animated, it can take that liberty which I think is really great. And I think that's what one of the cool things about animation is that you don't have to necessarily stick to strict reality all the time, which I really think is super, super cool. And yeah, I just think it's so, so good. I don't know if I can call it underrated anymore because I think a lot of people know about it now, but I still think it's something where maybe it's underseen sometimes. Um, I think it does have appreciation in the horror community, kind of, and and the anime community in general, of course, too. People who love anime, like they're like, "Oh my god, Perfect Blue," you know. But it's true because it, there's a reason for that. I think it's because it's an actually very good film, and you know, it it is just something where I'm like, you know, yeah, you can make the arguments about like, oh, this ended up like influencing like requiem for a dream and like pretty much black swan is like a remake of perfect blue and like whatever the hell but i mean it must there's some influence there i mean there has to be like it just in films in general like you know i'm sure there has been some influence from perfect blue especially since this movie is like literally 25 years old now which is crazy but yeah i mean it's one of those things where it's hard not to see that so i Oh, God, I just so recommend this movie. It's so fucking good. And, you know, it's like a nice, brisk, like, 80-something minutes, you know? You can get in, get out. Um, and even if you're not interested in anime, and if you're not an anime person, uh, it does not matter, because this movie is not about the anime of it all. Like, it's not like your typical anime film. Uh, it just so happens that that's the... the, the medium in which it's de- delivered in but really it it's just a, a beautiful work of art and i think it's just so good it has so much to say um just you know talking about things like parasocial relationships with with celebrities um and just the idea of celebrity in general and just the duality that comes along with that like your public persona and your private persona kind of thing it and that also comes into a lot of like just Japanese culture and kind of how they live their daily lives. And it's just very interesting. I just think it's a really cool film and that people need to watch and people need to just be interested in. But in this, uh, this regard, you can get this movie on Shutter. It is on Shutter and I hope it sticks around for a bit. It also has a Blu-ray release that you can get. I don't have the Blu-ray of it, but maybe I should get it at some point. It'd be nice. 
Uh, this is also on like YouTube as well. You can go pay up and, you know, go get that movie, which I totally think you should. And yeah, you're able to find it. It's around, you know, so you're able to find it and watch it and, you know, just let yourself enjoy all of Perfect Blue. And yeah. And who knows? Maybe it'll make you enjoy anime movies and then you can like go be a wonderful little otaku and like go watch all the other anime movies. You know what I mean? Why not? But yeah, I highly, highly, highly recommend this movie. And, you know, I think plenty of other people would tell you as well, but I, I highly recommend it. It's so good. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cult cinema circle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say, Hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cult cinema circle and on Twitter at cult cinema circle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there. If they want, you can also follow me on letterboxd at Jesse J E S. S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that I watch, I write little stupid reviews about them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1962's Carnival of Souls. Mary Henry ends up the sole survivor of a fatal car crash through mysterious circumstances. Trying to put the incident behind her, she moves to Utah and takes a job as a church organist, but her fresh start is interrupted by visions of a fiendish man. As the visions begin to occur more frequently, Mary finds herself drawn to the deserted carnival on the outskirts of town. The strangely alluring carnival may hold the secret to her tragic past. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, it's all right. There's no way illusions can come to life. Take care. Bye.